We're in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus sends out the twelve. He sends them out in pairs, which, as I mentioned last week, was not for the sake of companionship. It was not primarily for the sake of mutual support, as we often hear preached about. But rather it was because, according to Jewish law, in any kind of legal setting, and especially in situations of important consequence, there had to be, by law, at least two witnesses, or there was no case. A person accused of a capital crime, for instance, could not be prosecuted on the basis of only one individual who says they saw what happened. And why is that? Because God knows people. God knows people better than people know people, and he knows that people can and do lie. Now, of course, two people could lie, 20 people could lie, but it makes it that much more difficult. See, with one person's testimony, there isn't even the possibility of corroboration of the accusation, and so there had to be at least, again, two witnesses, and if more, even better. So Jesus is sending out the twelve to witness. And to witness to what? He's sending them out to witness to the grand purpose for which Jesus had come. And the grand purpose for which Jesus had come was, of course, to be the Savior of sinful man. So the issue at hand was, is this Jesus, is this man the long-awaited, the long-promised Messiah? And the twelve witnesses are sent forth to say, yes, he is, and here's what we know about him and why we believe that he is the one. And Jesus sends them out equipped, delegating to them the responsibility of getting that message of hope and of salvation clear and correct and, when necessary, concise. That one does not apply to preachers. This is why the passage that we ended with last week was Luke's account of another commissioning of more witnesses, this time not just the 12 disciples, but of 70 more witnesses. It's recorded in Luke chapter 10. And Luke gives us a logical progression of thought, which if understood, really ought to be sobering to every true follower of Jesus. Mark doesn't report it, but Luke does. And again, let's remember that this is Jesus himself speaking. Jesus says, The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, in this logical flow of statement, there is a huge assumption that is underlying what Jesus said. The assumption is that the message Jesus' followers in every age, who are what? Again, they're called witnesses. The message that Jesus' followers in every age are giving is a message that has to be biblically accurate. So that, is the necessary condition to Jesus saying that anyone who listens to you is, in fact, listening to me. Now, let's take this logical progression of the statement 
for when we are talking to someone about Jesus, or even when we're talking about the Bible in general. But in this context, it is specifically about who Jesus is and why he came. Let the logic begin. Logical step number one. If we are saying to people what Jesus would say, or what Jesus has said, then it's the same as people listening to Jesus himself. Logical step number two. If you are saying the same thing that Jesus has said, and the people reject what you are saying, then it's the same as if they are listening to Jesus and reject him. And logical step number three is that anyone who rejects Jesus, no matter what they profess to believe about the Bible, no matter what they say they believe about eternity and about heaven and hell and about God and salvation and the second coming and tithing and kindness and compassion, even if what they are saying about those things is biblically accurate, if they reject what Jesus has said, what he did, why he came, they are nonetheless necessarily rejecting God the Father, the one who sent Jesus. God the Son and God the Father are not two separate deities. They are not two separate entities. Meaning, the person who says, I believe in God... I just don't believe in Jesus, or at least I don't believe in your Jesus. That individual is totally illogical, not to mention theologically absurd. If the God of the Bible really is a triune God, meaning God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, then you cannot reject one without rejecting all three. Okay, see, this isn't NASA-worthy. This is pretty easy and straightforward. To reject any one of the Trinity is to reject all of the Trinity by definition. Now, let me clarify rejection. And what Jesus means when he speaks of people rejecting him, because there is hardly a religion, and I'm probably fudging there, I'm not sure that I could come up with a single religion, maybe I could, that outright rejects the idea, some idea of Jesus. In other words, some Jesus that they believe in. Most Christians today, you would think, you would hope, say they believe in Jesus and would be highly insulted for someone to say that they have rejected Jesus. So what does rejecting Jesus mean? Rejecting Jesus means rejecting who he said he is. Rejecting Jesus means disagreeing with who the Bible says plainly and clearly who he is, which means any and all. Any and all substitutions for the Jesus of the Scripture are unacceptable. And yet such substitutions are rampant in today's world, even as they were in Jesus' day. Or have we forgotten? 
Gospel writer Matthew, chapter 16, verse 13 and forward records. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. No, others say Elijah, but still others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter is the one that pipes up. And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The church today, and I'm referring to the broad church that wears the name of Jesus, is on a steady slide downward, succumbing to all manner of Jesus' substitutes, which is the reason the church is in such a mess. So many do not know the Jesus that was incarnated at Bethlehem and whose life we see detailed in the pages of the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative words of God. Instead, he is a created hodgepodge of fanciful ideas reflecting the heart and the mind of sinful man. And the reason the prosperity gospel is so appealing and popular is because a perverse gospel message issues forth from a perverse hodgepodge of sin-tainted values of the popular manufactured Messiah Savior. My manufactured Jesus loves everyone, no matter who they are. Listen to what I'm saying here clearly now, because there's such a thin line. Jesus loves everyone, no matter who they are. No matter what they do. My Jesus is always there for you to pick you up when you fall down, even when you fall down, because you are pursuing your dreams for you and not his dreams for you. My Jesus is there to wipe you off when you soil your soul pursuing your gratifications and your fantasies. My Jesus is there to mend my wounds of rebellion so I can pursue my dreams even more. My Jesus can't do enough to help me into the fullness of my goals and my happiness. My Jesus forgives me no matter what I do, how often I do it, <coughs> sorry, and how regularly I return to the same course of disobedience. My Jesus lives to pour into my lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. You had to get the scripture in there. What an appealing Jesus this is. And much of what I just said is so very close to the truth. But this Jesus is a Jesus that flesh and blood has revealed. What did Jesus say to Peter when he answered as he did? Okay, but who do men, that is, who does everybody else say that I am? 
And who do you say that I am? And Simon answers and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. And why is Simon blessed? Because flesh and blood did not reveal who Jesus was to Peter. Neither the prevailing ideas of the day about who this Jesus is, nor did your own sin-stained fantasies, Peter, inform your answer to my question. Not even the popular authoritative for the day religious opinions of the Jewish scholars. They viewed the Messiah coming as the conquering king who would destroy Rome and reinstill them, the Jews, as the rulers of the world. But no, not even they shaped your answer to my question. So Peter, where did you get your answer from? My Father, who is in heaven, revealed it to you. Now, what is the significance of this in practical terms? Do you see, and if you don't, hopefully you will in a second, how absolutely clarifying this is for all of the Christian hand-wringing that goes on when we start talking about other religions. Other religions like whether or not Mormons are Christian. Whether Muslims worship the same God we do. Will Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian scientists, will those kind, sweet Buddhists and even the contemplative Hindus also be in heaven? And in this whole broad category of religion and truth, we cannot ignore or be unbiblically gracious towards the pantheon of perverted presentations of Jesus now playing at a so-called Christian church near you. Ecumenism is of the devil. What is ecumenism? Ecumenism is, well, look, you're Christian, we're Christian, we're all Christian, we all have Christian in our name, we all say we're Christian, let's all get together and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, and then let us pray to our own God in our own way. That's ecumenism. Unity trumps all things. It's of the devil. So, this might take you aback, but stay with me. Are Mormons Christians? I don't know. Hang on, hang on. Are Jehovah's Witnesses Christians? Are Christian scientists Christians? Are Jews Christians? I don't know. Stay with me. I can't tell you if this Mormon or that Jehovah's Witness is a Christian. But I can tell you this. Mormonism is not Christian. Why can I say that without the accusation of being judgmental sticking? Because their official doctrine of Jesus is not the scriptural Jesus. And the same thing can be said for Muslims. 
for Jehovah's Witnesses, for Christian scientists, for Buddhists, for Hindus, for Jews, and the growing body of so-called Christian denominations that have long gone off the reservation, getting further and further away from the Jesus of Scripture. You see, when I entered the army, I had to declare on my forms what religion I was. I put down Christian scientists. That's what I, church I was going to when I was in high school before I entered the army. I thought I was a Christian scientist. If you'd ask me, what are you? I said, I'm a Christian scientist. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Oh, but what Jesus, what Jesus do you believe in? Well, by God's grace, though it was in embryonic form, I believed in the real Jesus of the scriptures. But that is not the official doctrine of Christian science, which has a very warped and perverted human Jesus. So you see, when I, when you ask me, well, is, you know, is that those Mormons that came to my door, are they Christians? I don't know. They could be, they could be, you know, their hearts, they could just be brand new into this indoctrination scheme and everything else. And the Jesus that they really know and believe in is not the Jesus of Mormonism. So I can't judge their heart. What I can judge is the official teaching of this church and that church and every other thing, whether or not their Jesus lines up with Scripture. Do you see what I'm saying? You see why I answered as I did? Well, is this Mormon Christian? I don't know. And I've been asked just very recently, what about Glenn Beck? Do you think Glenn Beck's a Christian? I don't know. He is puzzling, to be sure. (laughs) That's about all I'll say. But he's not my worry to declare whether he is or he isn't. I take what he says and match it up against Scripture. And then let the chips fall where they may. So when Jesus sends his followers into the world to represent Jesus to the world, and the world rejects them, they are by default rejecting Jesus, the one and only source of forgiveness, which means that they are left with eternal condemnation for themselves. That's not being harsh. And it is not being judgmental, it is being rigorously biblical. Paul never has a problem pronouncing truth, even hard truth, even offensive truth over those whom he had influence. In the third chapter of Romans, Paul's pretty upset because he and the disciples were being accused of preaching a gospel of libertinism. Meaning you can live like hell and all will be swell. Do whatever you want. Why? Because God's got a forgiveness. And this was the basis for the libertines. Now, Paul was not one, but this was the basis of the school of the gospel, if you will, of libertinism. Since grace is a good thing, right? Grace is. And since grace magnifies God's greatness, then libertinism says... Well, then we should sin our fool heads off because the more you sin the bigger grace becomes. I mean, that is logical, if you think in a warped kind of way. Well, what is Paul's response? If it is true that the more we sin, the greater God becomes because the more grace is poured out, 
And here it is. Then, why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, well, then let us do evil so that good may come. What does Paul say of those making the accusation? Their condemnation is just. He's always so sensitive. So Jesus, to the twelve witnesses, says, Look, when you leave such a town as has rejected the Father, get ready for the protest by some. We haven't rejected the Father. We've rejected you, His so-called witnesses. No, you've rejected the Father by rejecting us because our witness is faithful and true. So Jesus tells his disciples to declare their innocence of the condemnation of those rejectors by shaking the dust off their condemned souls from their sandals. I do not hold you responsible for their unbelief. Back in my day when I was recording uh, commentaries three times a week for uh, the radio called Cripes Corner, I gave what I would call a 21st century kind of version of the sandal shaking the dust off after each and every single commentary I did, and there were hundreds. I would finish up by saying, that's my opinion, but if it's right, you can't avoid the consequences. You don't have to agree with it, but if it's right, You can't avoid the consequences. I don't believe that we think often enough about those times, which are not few, when Jesus seems to demonstrate a much more cut-and-dry attitude concerning spreading the good news of salvation and how he instructs his witnesses to respond. Given all that I said last week and with what I've said now again this week, I seriously wonder, and truly, I truly seriously wonder how these passages from Matthew and Mark and Luke should impact the church's missiology. That means the way the church does and thinks about and performs and carries out missions. Is it valid for missionaries to spend years and years in a place which has been a spiritual wasteland. Should missionaries be sent to places or remain in places where they are not welcome? And by that, I don't mean simply by the governing authorities but I mean by the very people to whom they are sent, which sounds very close to what Jesus said, and if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet. But admittedly now, this, 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 is, this is a little tricky. Let's think about present day. Let's think about Chris Nanakin and the ministry, the mission that he's involved with called Overseas Training of Asian Nationals. That group specializes in going into countries where they are not welcome by the governing authorities. Oh, but they are welcome by the people there. And one such country that they go into surreptitiously 
claims about 25 million people in the covert, hidden home church of that country. At any rate, what is unfortunate is that to even ask the kinds of questions that I just asked is to trample on years of habit, practice, and tradition. But they are worthy questions, I think. You don't have to agree with it, but if it's right, you can't avoid the consequences. So in verse 12, the 12 are given their orders, and they went out and they preached that if you vote for Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true. Oh, wait, no, that was Pedro and Napoleon Dynamite. Sorry. Well, you, those of you who have no idea, you're going, what? It's okay. It's for the younger folks, you know, like me. Oh, but sometimes it's hard to tell. No, the twelve went out and preached that men should repent. Now, take verse 12 with what Jesus said to the twelve, sending them out concerning people rejecting their message. People don't tend to turn their backs on big smiles, gentle voices, plenty of attaboys and attagirls or stories of gold at the end of rainbows. But the biblical gospel tells people to repent. And see, the issue here is, is that people being told they need to repent means that they're doing something Unadvised, something untoward, something wrong. You see, inherent to the command to repent is authority, is conviction, and is consequences. What does Jesus say in John chapter 16 referring to the Holy Spirit? when he will be sent after Jesus goes back to heaven, and the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. A message of repentance is offensive to our world today. Even in the church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> All of which is to say, if you do not believe that the gospel is both the greatest news to man and the worst news to man and you're not reading your Bible. John 3, 19 forward. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Which means if you as a witness to Jesus are being 
are being just overwhelmingly embraced by the masses because of your message of loving tolerance and affirmation and acceptance of all things, you have become an agent of darkness. <laughs> Spoken in love. The twelve were sent out. And they went out and they preached that men should repent and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So in their faithfulness now, they've gone out as the witnesses of Jesus. Their message and their reputation was getting out there, meaning it was becoming known farther and farther abroad. Such that this guy now named Herod heard of all that was happening. And in typical Mark style, without segue, Mark now throws in a 16-verse story about John the Baptist and Herod. Let's look at that. King Herod heard of it. Of what? He heard about the witness of Jesus. He heard about Jesus because his name was growing and all that. For his name had become well known and people were saying, Whoa, John the Baptist has risen from the dead and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. But others were saying, No, he's not John the Baptist, he's Elijah. And yet others were saying, No, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested. Now we get this story. He had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and so Herod kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod's an interesting dude. Well, a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet. From his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half the kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, Mom, what shall I ask for? And she said, a new Jaguar X-Type, all-wheel drive, 12 No, ask for, get ready, my dear daughter, John the Baptist. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once. Here it is, drum roll, please. Herod's like, okay, what is it? The head of John the Baptist, and she adds, on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. 
Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter. I mean, just picture this. And gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body, and they laid it in a tomb. There seems to be no connection to what we just looked at over the past several weeks in what precedes this, what seems to be an intrusion. And there seems to be no real connection to what follows this from verse 30 onward. Why does Mark give such a detailed account of John and Herod at this particular point in Mark's narratives? I'm not certain. But, maybe. Is it anything to do with, going back to, who do men say that I am? Remember the words of the disciples when Jesus asked, they said, oh, well, some say John the Baptist, and some say, and some say, and some say, and some say. Some, actually, Herod's the one who started that line of thinking concerning John the Baptist. But let's think about the juxtapositioning of this story with what I just got done talking about. Why is it here? Why does God, in his inspiration, have Mark place it here in the text? Well, it is on the heels of the twelve being sent out to witness to who this Jesus is. And they were being sent out, and we're already told what they were preaching. They were preaching a message of repentance based on who Jesus is. And the twelve are warned that they will be rejected and what to do when they are. But beyond that, the warning and then telling them that they should accept the first offer that comes along for their practical accommodations, no other promises are recorded concerning their protection from hostile crowds. Enter John the Baptist. John was known as what? A preacher of what? He was known and called a preacher of righteousness. And John was pretty bold. And he didn't hesitate to call out Herod, a very powerful political figure. He didn't shrink back from calling Herod out in his immorality and his fornication publicly. And so we've been told in the text that John unnerves Herod, and yet he also intrigues him, so much so that Herod protected John even while incarcerating him. But at the end of the day, John gets beheaded on a stupid promise of an egotistical poser king. He wasn't even a real king who couldn't back out of the stupid promise that he made. So maybe, and really this is a maybe, the story of John occurs here and now because there is no promise. Think about the news lately. And men in orange jumpsuits on their knees... There is no promise that being a faithful witness for Jesus brings unicorn and rainbows while we're on earth. Much 
to the dismay of men like Joel Osteen and others. Matthew tells us that while John was in prison, he sent word to Jesus. You remember what John wanted to know? He said, go and find out if Jesus is the one. Is he the long-expected, awaited, hoped-for Messiah, the Savior of mankind? And i got to tell you that Jesus' answer is as interesting for what he says, but even more interesting for what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus obviously knew that John was in prison. Obviously. He obviously knew he was in prison for what? For the heinous crime of preaching righteousness and repentance. And yet, God incarnate, the one with authority over demonic powers, over the very elements of the universe, never even addresses the fact of John's flagrantly unjust imprisonment. And I want to say, Jesus, what about that? While it is distasteful to me, John seems to be an example that the reward for faithful witness may very well be imprisonment and death. All of you out there, right now, who want to formally before God say, I am willing to get my head cut off with a nasty, rusty old dull knife. Come on up here. We're going to have an invitation right now. I'm kidding. (laughs) I thought he was serious. Matthew 16. This is certain. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John apparently served the purposes for which God sent him. He was the the one who was to precede the coming of Messiah to make the path straight. If we recall the prophecies about John. He did that. Now the Messiah was there. He answers John's question about whether he was the one expected. John, I have to believe, in the Spirit of God, had an overwhelming sense of peace and joy and celebration that, like so many through the ages, could say, and I had the honor to die for my Savior. We are still very, very protected in this country, although I've said it many times, that is changing. That is changing. And it will change. And as I hear of more beheadings by ISIS, or more burnings of ISIS, or more drownings, beheadings, and burnings of ISIS, I pray, dear God, one, I don't want to ever have to face that, but two, if somehow in your grand scheme of things that is what comes about, dear God in heaven, 
Help me to be faithful to the end. (laughs) The full gospel, as it's called in some parts of the church, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it is overwhelmingly good for those who believe It's overwhelmingly bad for those who do not. And sometimes I wonder if the, and I have no idea about this because it's nothing scriptural, but I do wonder in my little fantastical thinkings of theology and everything else, I wonder if one of the horrors of hell will not be the people who are there having constant reminder of all the opportunities they were faced with to say yes to Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And if you haven't done that, I've laid it out pretty clearly. So there you go. Let me have you stand. Pray with me. Lord in heaven, I pray for any and everyone here this morning that truly, Lord, and you know, that has given their lives in some way, shape, or form to a different Jesus. Bring that conviction to them right now and the joy of the hope that is theirs right now at this moment to take your loving mercy, your blood, Lord, shed at the cross for the cleansing of all sins, past, present, and future, filling them with your Holy Spirit, now to walk with you from this day forward. And, oh God, encourage those of us who have done so, but we wander. We are so prone to wandering. Bring us back. Call us back. To see your love and your grace again anew and afresh. And fill us with a boldness to not shrink back from declaring your truth and your Jesus, the light of the world, to dispel the darkness. In your name I pray. Amen.